in this study, in this series, Thy Kingdom Come. We're in Lesson 13 tonight as we continue to progress through. We'll only have a few more, um, but the few that remain are very good. And if you remember, we've gone through uh, lots of different topics in this series. We have considered a bunch of different things about the coming kingdom, about the day of the Lord when he will come um, and bring in his wrath, uh, deal with all of his enemies, uh, save the people of Israel, the remnant and the, the nation of Israel, and then he is moving into his kingdom. And so that's some of where we're getting to right now. We have a few more lessons that I'd like to cover with you. So tonight I want to go a little bit deeper. We're going to do a brief review from a few of the things that we covered last week. So consider this. Before we go into the review and continue forward, I want to briefly examine how Jesus' victory ends in Revelation 19 so that we can then see him moving from this battleground and what appears to happen next. As I've mentioned before, some of the order and sequence of some of these events may be different. Um, we, we don't know the exact order. It doesn't say he does this, and then he does this, and then he does this. So some of that we just have to try to surmise um, and follow based on what the word does say. But we do know what things will happen, many of them, because the word of God tells us. And if you'll remember, uh, last lesson or two, we spoke about how in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, it says that what has been is what will be. In other words, we learn the pattern of the things that are futuristic that the Bible speaks about, even though they have not yet happened, what has happened and what is written in the Word in other places at least gives us clues as to what or how things will transpire in the future because it, it may be similar. It forms, in essence, a pattern or a model or a foreshadow of the coming things that we've not yet experienced. So, on that backdrop, let's continue to go forward. First of all, I want to briefly examine how Jesus' victory ends in Revelation chapter 19. So, we're going to start out, and I want to read a passage here in Revelation 19 into the first few verses of Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation 19, verse 17, this is after he's ridden in on the white horse. He's proclaimed um, himself to be, you know, he, he comes in in victory from the sky. We're behind him and his name um, on his thigh, the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So let's pick up right after that. <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. This was the carcasses and the uh, corpses of his enemies and all of those that had battled against him. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his armies. This is what he's talking about here. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two 
<clears throat> were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So this is when we see his victory over his enemies actually come to pass. And the birds have uh, come to eat up these carcasses, and the people have been killed uh, in this place. And it says that the beast and the false prophet he has thrown alive into the lake of fire that will burn forever and ever in torment. Then it says in chapter 20, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, that serpent from Genesis chapter 3, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So we see God not only deal with all of his enemies, his human enemies, and the uh, beast and the false prophet, but also now he's dealing with the devil himself. And at this point, he binds him up, puts a chain on him, throws him into this bottomless pit, and there he is held in chains, in bondage, until the end of the thousand years when Jesus will reign. Now, people <clears throat> tend to sometimes believe this thousand years may or may not be a real literal thousand years. I personally have the opinion that when we try to allegorize and do all these other things with Scripture, we can get into a place of, of uh, nonsense. As a matter of fact, there's an adage that says, when the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense unless you end up in nonsense. So we don't want to end up there. We want to truly understand what the scriptures are telling us, what the word of God is saying. And so sometimes it's just, it's just better to let the word of God speak and take it for what it says. So I'm one of those literal interpretation or interpreters where when the scripture speaks literally, we simply take it literally. So I truly believe that, that the kingdom, the millennial kingdom that is coming, where the Lord Jesus Christ will rule and reign from Jerusalem, will be a literal 1,000-year period. And I believe that's very clear in scripture, and we don't need to question it. We don't need to play around with that. Let scripture define scripture. That's one of the best points we can always make about reading through the scriptures and understanding what it's saying is let the scripture interpret itself. And so we just take it for what it says. So then if you'll remember from last lesson, scripture tells us that this will be, what this will be is what has already been. We talked about that in Ecclesiastes. So in order to understand what's coming in the future, we can go back into the scriptures and look for either prophetic words of what will happen or types and shadows that form a pattern to understand what's going to happen. So let's consider that. We also have in the, in the Old Testament and in other places of scripture imagery and shadows of the elements of these future events that are coming. So let's move forward with that. 
Uh, the first scripture I'd like to read uh, now tonight, also after that place in Revelation, is Proverbs 25.2. Proverbs 25.2 says this, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. So in other words, the wisest man Solomon until Christ is saying to us here that that God hides things sometimes. And he does it because he wants us to seek it out. He wants us to dig deeper. You know, I'm one of those that happens to enjoy doing jigsaw puzzles. And the puzzles, you know, you buy this box and the box top has the picture on it that, that the whole puzzle will make. And then inside the box is a bunch of bro broken pieces, whether it's 300 or 500 or 1,000 or what, however, whatever the size is. So you got all these pieces that are sprinkled all together inside this box. And what you do and what those of us that, that enjoy that do, and we find some joy in it. Some people don't have the patience or whatever and don't like it. And I used to think that I was like that too, but then I, I did learn you know, more about it, and I did find that it's relaxing and it's enjoyable for me. But what we do is we dig down in the box, and then from the box, we start pulling all the pieces that fit together until we have put together the entire picture, and it now matches what was on the box. So that's a fun thing that some of us can enjoy. I know not everybody enjoys that, but some do. And so it's similar to that that Solomon is saying here. God has a glorious, beautiful picture he wants us to understand in his word, a beautiful love letter, a beautiful picture of his son. And so what he does is he has all kinds of little picture, uh, picture pieces sprinkled in his word, sprinkled in the things that he's doing. And he wants us to dig them out and find them and search them out and fit them all together. And so that's what he's talking about here. So we, we take that as another principle toward understanding his word. The word of God is worth the time and the effort that it takes to search it out and discover the answers and the patterns for what's ahead. So once Jesus has dealt with all of his enemies, the stage is now set as we begin to move forward toward him actually taking up his kingdom. Now, a few of these things are review some from the last lesson or two, but I want to get moving a little bit farther than that tonight. So first of all, we, we looked at Jesus' first triumphal entry back in Mark chapter 11, and we saw how this may be a foreshadow of his final real true triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The Old Testament gives us this pattern. Let's look back into 1 Kings chapter 1, and I mentioned these passages in, others, uh, in other lessons that we've had, but I actually want us to read them today. In 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 32 through 40, it says this, And King David said, called unto me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king. The king also said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon his, my son 
ride on my own mule and take him down to Gihon. There let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel and blow the horn and say, Long live King Solomon. Then you shall come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne and he shall be king in my place for I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. Now obviously this is true and prophetic and and did actually happen with the real Solomon, David's son. But I want you to see also that this forms a pattern for the son of David who will come and take up the throne forever because he's been given an everlasting kingdom. And that is Jesus, the Messiah, Yeshua. So David is old here and he's about to die. Adonijah has tried to usurp the regency to reign in David's place. Nathan and Bathsheba appealed to David because God had spoken and based upon God's word, the ruler after David was to be Solomon. That's who God appointed. So David agrees with them that they need to act. And so David sends them on a ride, a true triumphal journey, so to speak. David's mule, or the king's beast of burden, he takes him down to the Gihon Springs. There's an anointing there, and there is coronation and declaration of him as king of kings. The Gihon Springs were the place of anointing of kings. It was the place where they would coronate and anoint the kings in that area. So this forms at least a pattern for us to examine. Also, in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 1 through 13, I'm not going to read this whole passage, but we referenced it in a previous lesson, and it does speak about how when uh, Elisha, I believe it is, yes, Elisha has been, uh, is sending out the anointing and the coronation for Jehu, who's going to be king. And so it says, in verse, I'm going to read you verse 13. Elisha comes and he speaks the word of the Lord about Jehu becoming king to Jehu. He comes back in to some of the fellows because Elisha did this privately, but he was sitting with some other guys. And so he came back to the whole congregation of them. Jehu did. He came back to those he was with and they asked him, they said, well, what did this, you know, what did this prophet say? What did this madman say to you or whatever? And so he tells them, and they, this is how they respond. Verse, um, verse 12. No, verse 13, excuse me. Then each man hastened to take his garment and put it under him on the top of the steps, and they blew trumpets, saying, Jehu is king. So from these two events and these two um, coronations and anointings, we see a pattern for what Jesus showed us in the first triumphal entry in pattern form. But possibly, even beyond that, could this be the type of coronation ceremony and, and happening that will come when Jesus actually, after he defeats his enemies and he begins to ride into Jerusalem? Because he has been given an everlasting kingdom, and he is designed to rule there in Jerusalem as king. So he will be coronated as king. These foreshadow for us, perhaps, the actual coming kingdom and his coronation 
and declaration. Jesus may be coronated even there at the Gihon Springs, which is just outside of Jerusalem. They, that's the place that kings were anointed, kings were coronated, kings were declared, trumpets were blowing, and there was a declaration that he was king. So it's very possible that this might form a pattern for us, perhaps, even after we ride behind him in, into the earth in that triumphal entry and triumphal ride to, de to defeat all of his enemies. Perhaps after that, we ride and he stops it. He goes to Gihon. Who knows? And he is anointed and he is coronated, perhaps even at the Gihon Springs, just like it was done in the patterns before. Then Jesus is given his rightful due, his eternal kingdom. I want to turn over now to Isaiah, and I want to read this again to you. I think we read it last week, but let's look back at it again. Isaiah chapter 9. Let me pull it up here. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity is a better translation, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with justice, ju judgment and justice from that time forward even forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And then as we talked about last week in Daniel chapter 7, we see where he is given by the Ancient of Days, meaning God the Father, he is given the everlasting kingdom that will have no end. And this is to the Son of Man, or Jesus, the Messiah. And so we see that that's happening in the future. Now, perhaps that will happen here, uh, either right before the triumphal entry back from heaven in Revelation 19 early on. Perhaps it will happen at this time when Jesus then gets his coronation perhaps even at the Gihon Springs. But we do know that this will happen, and Jesus, the Son of Man, will receive from the Ancient of Days that master keeper of the time clock, his everlasting kingdom. And now it will begin to come to pass on earth. Now, this I posed this question perhaps in the last lesson to think about, and I don't know the answer to this, but it is interesting and intriguing to think about. Could the Father decree audibly Jesus is king? Just like they decreed about uh, Jehu, just like they decreed about Solomon, and they would um, give him that and say, long live Solomon, or king live forever, those kinds of things. Could there be this type of decree that goes forth from God the Father on that day, audibly, to his own son. Well, we do know in Revelation 19, 16, that his name that's written on his thigh there is King of Kings. That was a title that we see in one other place in the scripture, and that's in Daniel chapter 2. And it was spoken at that in that place of Nebuchadnezzar. But it gives us details about what that title means. It means that it's the one to whom God gives kingdom, 
power, strength, and glory, authority, and dominion over the people, the animals, and nature. This gives us a pattern from this Old Testament, even though it was speaking of a foreign king, that defines what the title means. Now, if God will himself make a decree about his son and his kingdom, what might that be? Do we possibly have a few clues in Scripture? We don't know, but I, like I said, you know, the Scriptures do give us a lot of information and some patterns, some prophecies, some imagery. So it's interesting to look at that. We do know that these things are spoken by God, and they do refer to the Messiah, whether they will be audibly broadcast again at his coronation before he's entering Jerusalem to sit forever and to rule from the, the throne of David or not. I don't know, but I would like to read some of these passages to you for your, for your consideration. Psalm 110, verses 1 through 7, says this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. That was talking about what, the place that we're at right now. Because the enemies being made his footstool will occur in Revelation chapter 19. And when he deals with them once and for all. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power and the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of, the, of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. A lot of this is speaking about what's happening in Revelation chapter 19. Let's also turn and see in Revelation chapter, I mean in Psalm chapter 2, excuse me. In Psalm chapter 2, it says this in verse 4 through 9. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall hold them in derision. It's been talking about how the people have made all boastful uh, comments and they speak against the Lord. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Exactly what happens in Revelation chapter 19. Now notice this. God says, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Then he goes on in verse 10. That was through verse 9. And then he goes on in verse 10, and he begins to instruct people who are going to be serving and around in the time of the millennial kingdom. He says, there, Now therefore be wise, O kings, those who are left and alive in the millennial kingdom, those who are in other places around and in maybe even other nations during that time. Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. This is a very prophetic psalm 
about uh, some of it is speaking about where we are right now, but then it's also prophetic about that coming time when Jesus will come into his messianic kingdom. So there's a couple of places here where we may hear some spots where the Lord himself, where God the Father will speak in his own voice and say a few of these things. It's at least uh, a possibility. We'll find out for sure. Psalm 45, verses 3 through 8 is another one I wanted to read you. And it's another possible consideration. Psalm 45, verse 3 through 8. Psalm 45, verse 3 says, You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Now, this is speaking of when he does come riding in on the white horse. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty, and in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, for the people fall under you. There he's talking about what happens in Revelation 19 when he comes against his enemies. Then continuing on in verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory places by which they have made you glad. And then he goes on, he talks about king's daughters or among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. So here we see another prophetic word about the coming kingdom of the Messiah. As a matter of fact, this particular psalm is dubbed by the Jews as the wedding psalm of the Messiah. It's a beautiful psalm to understand in terms of its prophetic element. Could these scriptures possibly give us some clues as to perhaps any declaration that be, may be made at this time when Jesus is coronated and receiving his kingdom, possibly either by God the Father himself or by other people? Remember at Jesus' baptism, God did speak audibly. He attested that this was my beloved, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. One other time in scripture we see that happen was at his transfiguration when God spoke audibly. So it's, it's just a curious notion, I wonder, might the Lord also, when his son is receiving the eternal kingdom, when his son is coming into his messianic kingdom's reign, when his son is about to take up the throne of David, and sit and rule in Jerusalem, and his son is being coronated. It at least is a possibility that he might speak from heaven and make his own declarations. Hallelujah. Now let's examine this truly triumphant entry as he proceeds toward Jerusalem. After Jesus ride to redeem Israel and defeat the enemies, we do know that he's headed for one place. He is headed for his city, the city of Jerusalem. And I want to establish for you how and why we can be certain that that is, in fact, his city. 
First of all, let's read a few of the Old Testament Torah scriptures that will show us that. Read in Deuteronomy. The first one is Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 5 through 14. It says in verse 5, But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heath offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not at all do as we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own, high, in his own eyes, for as yet you've not come to the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. But when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies round about, so that you dwell in safety, then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants, male and female servants, and the Levites who is within your gates, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take heed to yourself that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place that you in every place that you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses. And then it goes on and it speaks about how he's chosen that out of every tribe. Flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 14, if you have your Bibles with you and you're following along. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 23 through 24 says, You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year, and you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide the tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil of the firstborn of your herds and your flocks, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So there's at least two places we've already seen. Now let's look at Deuteronomy 16, verse 2 and verse 6. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 2, Therefore you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd in the place where the Lord your God, where the Lord chooses to put his name. Then in verse 6, it says, let's read verse 5. You may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, but at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And then he goes on and he talks about it's there that they are to eat and observe the Passover. Flip over to Deuteronomy 26, verse 2. Deuteronomy chapter 26 and verse 2. Let's read verse 1 also. And it shall be when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and you possess it and dwell in it, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of your ground which you shall bring from the land that the Lord your God is giving you and put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There it is again. 
Then we read over in 2 Samuel how the Lord is saying that uh, he tells us there the story of how David took the city of, it was a Jebusite city, but its name is Jerusalem, and it became the city of David. It was taken by David, and it was bought. Ornan's threshing floor was purchased by David for the kingdom of God's sake, for the temple to rest upon. So now let's consider in Psalm chapter, I want to save that one for later. Psalm chapter 132. In Psalm 132, verses 11 through 14 says this, The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. If your sons will keep my covenant, my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. So God makes very clear to us here, as well as in some of these other places, that the place that he chose for himself as his city, as his dwelling place, is Zion. That is another name for Jerusalem. Mount Zion and Jerusalem are interchangeable in the word of God. They're, they're speaking of the same place. And he says, he swore to David that his son, who Jesus is, he is the son of David, from David's line, lineage, that he will be established there upon David's throne. And then he makes very clear here that it is Jerusalem. That is the place where the Lord chose to make his name abide. That is the place where his, the son of David, God's own son, will rule and reign on the throne of David in that city. It is Jerusalem. That is his city. So now, let's think about this as well. Let's finish tonight by looking at one final point about Jesus Real true, I'm calling it the true triumphal entry, his final one, when he comes in as King of Kings and Lord of Lords into his city. I want us to read this psalm, which is another prophetic psalm about this day and about the Messiah. I want to read Psalm 24. It says this, The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, this generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Now, here we go with the real messianic part of this um, in this prophetic word in Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. 
Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Here in these final verses of chapter 24, we see a definite prophetic word of Messiah in entering and coming to the season of his entry into his city, Jerusalem. He is the king of glory. It says the king of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He had just defeated his enemies right there beside Jerusalem, right there in that area. He is the Lord mighty in battle. He is the king of glory. And it, it, the call here, and we don't know if this is going to be an audible call that day, if, if God will call it out, if, if maybe others will call it out, I don't know. But it is called here, and it says, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors. Perhaps the cry is going to go out. Now, why is this significant? This is significant because there is speaking here, we believe, of, of the golden gate, in Jerusalem, or it may be called the Eastern Gate. It is closed currently and has been closed now for nearly 2,000 years, and it is going to be opened only for one person, and that is the King of Glory. You can see it today. It's all shut up, and it will be shut up until this day that speaks about in Revelation when it's time for the king of glory to enter his city and it will open only for him the king of glory we saw earlier that jesus is the glory of god he is the king of glory we don't know who might make this cry if it's going to be an actual cry that goes out but it will come to pass those gates will open then for the king of glory and he will enter his city, Jerusalem. And from there, he will begin to rule and reign for a thousand years. Next week, next lesson, I want to look at an Old Testament pattern that tells us a little bit more about when he actually rides into Jerusalem and what we might be able to expect from that pattern. God bless you tonight. And I trust that this has been a blessing to you in some way. And I look forward to having more times with you and for you to join in again in the future as we continue going through our series, Thy Kingdom Come. Because all of this, God wants us to understand that all the troubles and trials in this life, all that's happening in this world and the chaos and turmoil and other things, this is not our home. This is not our home when you are a Christian, you have an eternal home. You have an eternal future that is so far above in magnificence and in joy and in rejoicing that is so far above anything this world could ever have or, or offer us. And we're coming closer and closer to that day. It's not that far away, beloved, when we will enter our eternal home. We are just pilgrims passing through. And so God wants us to understand more as the church about the future that is ahead for us, what it means, and what the scriptures tell us about the millennial kingdom. And so I look forward to sharing more with you in coming lessons. God bless you is my prayer.